Good evening. President Biden asked Congress for a 90-day gas uh, gas tax moratorium. Indian drums in the Senate as a committee investigates Indian boarding school horrors. Rents go up and a beloved bookstore gets the boot from its Greenwich Village home for over 30 years. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Wednesday, June 22nd, 2022. A powerful earthquake struck a rugged mountainous region in eastern Afghanistan early today, flattening stone and mud brick homes and killing at least 1,000 people. The disaster posed a new test for Afghanistan's Taliban rulers and relief agencies already struggling with the country's multiple humanitarian crises. The quake was Afghanistan's deadliest in two decades, and officials said the toll could rise. An estimated 1,500 others were reported injured. In a rare move, the Taliban supreme leader pleaded with the international community and humanitarian organizations to help the Afghan people affected by this great tragedy and to spare no effort. The United States has been withholding billions in aid for Afghanistan since the U.S. military quit the country in a chaotic pullout that led to dozens of deaths earlier this year. And President Joe Biden on Wednesday called on Congress to suspend federal gasoline and diesel taxes for three months, an election year move meant to ease financial pressures. Today I'm calling on Congress to suspend the federal gas tax for the next 90 days through the busy summer season, busy travel season. Here's what that means. Every time you go to the gas station to fill your tank, The federal government charges an 18 cents tax per gallon of gas that you purchase and a 24 cent tax per gallon of diesel you purchase. It's a tax that's been around for 90 years. It's important because we use it for the highway trust fund to keep our highways going. But what I'm proposing is suspending the federal gas tax without affecting the highway trust fund. And here's how we do that. With the tax revenues up this year and our deficit down over $1.6 trillion this year alone, we'll still be able to fix our highways and bring down prices of gas. We can do both at the same time. And that's the president speaking earlier today. The president also called on states to suspend their own gas taxes or provide similar relief. And he critiqued the energy industry for prioritizing profits over production. At issue is the 18.4 cents a gallon federal tax on gas and 24.4 cents a gallon federal tax on diesel fuel. If the gas savings were fully passed along to consumers, people would save roughly three and a half percent of the pump when prices are averaging about five dollars a gallon nationwide. In his speech, Biden tied higher energy prices to Russia's invasion of Ukraine and said defending freedom, defending democracy was not going to go without cost for the American people and the rest of the free world. And in Washington. The Senate Committee on Indian Affairs held hearings today on an investigation into the Indian school system that existed in the United States from the Civil War era until the 1960s. The meeting opened with traditional drumming. Interior Secretary Deb Holland outlined the next steps her department has planned to address the legacy abuses at government-run schools for indigenous children and legislation to examine the matter. For over a century and a half, the federal government, including the Department of the Interior, forcibly removed indigenous children from their families and communities, and many never returned home. This intentional targeting and removal of Native children to achieve the goal of forced assimilation was both traumatic and violent. 
the consequences of federal Indian boarding school policies were inflicted on generations of children, some as young as four. On June 22, 2021, I announced the Federal Indian Boarding School Initiative, a comprehensive effort to address the troubled legacy of federal Indian boarding school policies. This marks the first time in our over 200 years since the Indian boarding school policies were implemented that the United States has formally reviewed or acknowledged the extensive scope and breadth of this piece of our history. The initial investigation shows that between 1819 and 1969, the federal Indian boarding school system consisted of 408 federal Indian boarding schools across 37 states, or then territories, including 21 schools in Alaska and seven schools in Hawaii. Our obligations to Native communities mean that federal policy should fully support and revitalize Native health care, education, languages, and cultural practices that prior federal Indian policies sought to destroy. The department working with relevant sister federal agencies will also work to expand tribal communities' access to mental health resources. A necessary part of this journey will be to connect survivors and their families with mental health support and to create a permanent collection of oral histories. Funding for our initiative will enable the department to help expand existing school pro profiles, detailing the number of children who attended federal Indian boarding schools, identifying marked and unmarked burial sites, identifying interred children, and detailing the amount of federal support for the system practices. Deb Holland is the first Indigenous Cabinet Secretary in the United States history. At these institutions, Indigenous children had their hair cut, were forbidden from speaking their native languages, among other efforts to extinguish their heritage and assimilate them into the broader American culture. WBAI's John Kane has more. Well, in the early 1800s, they passed a, uh, a law called the Civilization Act, and I don't know the exact date, it's like I don't know, 1815, something in that area. Um, and this is the foundation for um, having both the authority and to initiate the funding to try to force assimilation upon Native people. There became an increasing distaste for just slaughtering us, um, although massacres would continue for, you know, up until 1890. Um, but but the, even those are are expensive, and they they have political costs, they have financial costs, and you know Thomas Jefferson was one of the advocates who who thought that it was a more efficient means to eradicate us was to eliminate us as a distinct people. Um, he actually advocated that that Native people should be uh, run into debt, that store store owners storekeepers should. Uh, provide Native people with credit so we would run ourselves into debt, so we would lop off that debt with our lands, and that would thereby force us into assimilation. So, I mean, this is the, how, how... Redlining, history an goes. early version of redlining. Well, it's where some of the stuff got its origins. You can find examples in Hitler's Mein Kampf where he cites the efficiency with which the United States dealt with Native people, including the reservation systems and residential schools. Carlisle. What's that? Carlisle Indian School. This is the one that was in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. It's one of the most famous ones. It's where that Colonel Pratt, 
the architect of what would become this residential school system. So we set up the Carlisle Indian School. It's where guys like Jim Thorpe and Pee Wee football kind of got some of its start. Kids were captured from all over the country. They were sent there, and Pratt's slogan or strategy was coined as kill the Indian save the man. 408 of these schools. The fact that they're throwing small numbers like 50 or even 500 on Mark Graves is almost a pitiful offering. Look, on the Canadian side, they've already discovered over 10,000 unmarked graves on the Canadian side. And Canada had 130 to 150 of these schools, while the United States had three times the amount. Carlisle Indian School alone had a graveyard with over 200 children buried in marked graves some of them they said unknown on the tombstone i don't know how you have a kid in a school that you don't have a name for but most of that was because they were trying to eradicate our native names and give us good biblical names like joshua and mary and stuff like that but on the u.s side some of these schools the moment they felt like a kid was deathly ill they'd send them home then only then so they would die not on their watch the deaths that are probably going to be attributed to the residential schools my guess would be in excess of fifty to 60,000 children will have been proven to have either died, killed, or died as a result of these schools, if not at these schools. What kind of reparations are possible or being contemplated for this? On the Canadian side, there was a bunch of checks that were cut to, to survivors of residential schools. This isn't just about crimes against children. We experienced the largest period of land loss and autonomy loss during this 150 to 200 year period. I don't think we can have a conversation about reconciliation without having a conversation about restoration of lands and restoration of our sovereignty, our autonomy, and our distinction. Conversations about writing checks for survivors of schools ignores the fact that this was about committing genocide against a people, not just crimes against children, but genocide against peoples. And that is WBAI's own John Kane. The first interior report released in May found that over a 50-year period, more than 500 children died across 19 schools. That number is expected to climb as the investigation continues. A Senate committee establishing a Senate bill, that is, establishing a Truth and Healing Commission to address the school system's legacy was also discussed at today's meeting. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. New York City Mayor Eric Adams announced the completion of the first phase of a five-acre redevelopment project called the Peninsula in Hunts Point. The project will bring hundreds of affordable homes and community amenities to the former site of the Spofford Juvenile Detention Center in that neighborhood. It's the site where Adams was held himself as a 15-year-old child. He made the connection today. Nothing could be more significant that I was housed here as a juvenile in Spofford, and now we're building housing to prevent people from being housed in a juvenile correctional facility. That is amazing, and that is great about this city. My administration is going to take the juvenile facility that I was a juvenile offender in, and now I'm returning as the mayor to build a place to house people in. That's what we're talking about. That's what we're talking about. 
and that's mayor earlier today. In 2011, the detention center was closed after 54 years in operation and was notorious for its poor conditions. Interesting connection to the Indian school situation. Today, the initial $121 million phase of the mixed-use development has been completed, including 183 affordable units for New Yorkers earning between 30 and 80 percent of the area median income, with 18 homes specifically reserved for individuals who previously experienced homelessness. But activists say after yesterday's jump in rents for rent-stabilized New Yorkers by the Rent Guidelines Board, there may be a need for more affordable housing for more homeless people. All back. Rent for back. Rent for back. Rent for back. Rent for back. What we want. Rent for back. When we want it. Now. What we want. And that was the scene yesterday where hundreds of people came to uh, uh, protest outside and to uh, sit through the uh, hearings last night. Uh, the rents set by the um, uh, the Rent Guidelines Board has signed off on hikes as much as 3.25 percent, three and a quarter percent for new one-year leases for New York City's roughly one million rent-stabilized apartments. Landlords and tenants confronted uh, spiraling inflation and each other outside the um, hearing. New two-year leases for rent-stabilized units can jump by 5% as a result of last night's 5-4 to four board vote. Tenant campaigners say the current ranges are still too much and will likely force people from their homes as their budgets are already burdened by inflation. Bronx resident Irvin Bennett was with the organization CASA, Community Action for Safe Apartments. This evening for our rent, the rent guideline board going to vote. So we're here have them to, to roll back the rent because the pandemic have damaged this city and my community is terrible. I have a lot of eviction. I want the, the rent guideline to roll back this, the, the rent because it's going to affect our children, our seniors. We will mess up our community because it won't cause eviction. So if they raise the rent for 2% and to 6%, we can't afford that. New York can't afford that. You're going to cause more eviction, more homelessness. We are calling a mayor who will talk about homelessness. It's going to cause more homelessness if this rent increase. So please, Mr. Mayor, come to the tenant of New York City who will vote for you, who will put you in power. Come to us now. We need you now more than ever because the rent get that program raise our rent or cause eviction. More homelessness. So please, Mr. Mayor, come to us rescue now because we need your help now for the guideline board to roll back the rent. Because the, the RGB gave a lot of money the other day. The two billion dollars. Two billion dollars the state gave the landlords during the pandemic. And as Irvin Bennett of CASA, the rent set by the board impact one in three. New York City households. The vote comes a month after the rent board set the ranges at 2 to 4% for one-year leases and 4 to 6% for two-year leases. Initially, officials had floated potentially hiking rents as much as 9% on two-year leases. Housing activist Kim Spatuto says the most common lease is two years and a couple of percent increase is just unjust. That's on a one-year lease. Let's talk about the 4 to 6% on a two. Because most tenants signed two-year leases, so they don't have to deal with that every year. So let's talk about that 4 to 6%. So if you raise somebody's rent for 6%, that's $90 a month. 
Where are they getting that money from? Where? Where? We're already strapped. We're paying higher gas, higher food, higher transportation. Where is it coming from? Our wages didn't go up. Some of us lost jobs. Where are we getting it from? That's what I want them to know. Where are we getting this money from? So you're just going to push us out. Because that's what you're telling us. We don't want you here. You can't pay this. Move. That's not right. Her seven-year-old granddaughter, Avery, was there and had these comments. How old are you? Seven. Seven? Seven. Right. Avery Bruce is my granddaughter, and she's here because if her mom gets another rent increase, her mom is going to have to choose. My daughter is going to have to choose so either buy food, buy clothes for her. Rent. Rent. Doctor visits. Tell them. Needs tell them. for me. And all that kind of stuff that we need. What do you think of her? She is the best grandma I ever had. <laughs> and I'm glad to have her. And that's seven-year-old Avery. The mayor controls all nine appointments, but has named just three members so far because they serve staggered terms. Mayor Bill de Blasio frequently touted the 0% increase his rent boards approved in 2015 and 2016. And besides residential rents, there's also the problems with commercial rents, which have no uh, legal limit. They could be pretty much anything the landlord wants to set, pretty much what the market will bear. And that is causing a lot of problems for traditional, long-time New York City businesses that have uh, really defined the neighborhoods and the communities where they've uh, run these businesses often for many decades. On Sunday, Reverend Billy and the Stop Shopping Choir gathered at uh, the East Village Earth Church to make a saint out of beloved bookstore owner Jim Drugas. He's the owner of unoppressive, non-imperialist bargain books at 34 Carmen Street for the past 31 years. He's being forced to clear out his premises after the building's new owners jacked up his rent by 10 times, plus demand that he pay six months of the new rent up front. While Druga says he's yet to find an affordable space to relocate, he stressed that this is not the end of uh, unoppressive, non-imperialist bargain books, revealing he's been in talks with an art gallery about a new place on 9th Street. Uh, we hope him and wish him luck in that. Uh, we spoke with WBAWBAI. I spoke with Jim Drugus just uh, earlier today, this afternoon, at his bookstore, an amazing place filled with uh, every radical and interesting political and uh, debate-worthy book uh, that you could ever imagine. And uh, he told us the story, going way back, how he got interested in the book business and met uh, a person, a village person by the name of uh, Tom Fassad, who was also a publisher, a person who financed and had a way of financing what was then called the uh, underground press system of the United States. It was a network of underground newspapers and community newspapers with a combined one million readers at least. That was a, a, before the Internet, a way people got information about um, – the war in Vietnam, for example, and other cultural developments of that era in the 1970s. Jim spoke, as I said, with WBAI about that earlier today. This is our 31st year. You had a store before that, same general area. For many years, I was just exporting, wholesaling to some very 
special clients overseas, alternative sort of giant companies too. But in the 70s, I created this bookstore for High Times Magazine, for Tom Fassad in 76, called New Morning. Later it became something else, the Spring Street Bookshop from some years later. Tom uh, Fassad? Tom Fassad was the original publisher, creator of High Times Magazine, but very underground. He was one of the original yippies too, with Dana Beal and he was also a very large presence in the importation of cargo planes filled with special substances that you can smoke, you know, um, <laughs> in large, literally cargo planes. So I was publishing or coordinating a Lenny Bruce bibliography for an academic journal. Jack Solzman was a professor at Hofstra, and he said, "Let's. oh, I'm, I'm doing this journal. Can you do it? So I did this 40-page checklist of Lenny Bruce's interviews and writings, etc., writings about him but in the days way before there was such a thing as the internet even the mid-70s so it was a lot of work so i went to the alternative press syndicate was being run by tom and his, at that time his girlfriend gabrielle was there running it and i went in there looking for back issues to find all the whatever lenny bruce material I could find and she goes you're gonna meet tom he's gonna love you you know and she, and he's had already had a space on spring street i guess he went on some kind of little drug binge or import-export biz or whatever, and he um, came back many weeks later and somehow I managed to negotiate to get shelves built by the landlord himself, and I got Ron Turner at Last Gasp and Random House to give us thousands of dollars worth of credit. And all of a sudden there was a bookstore and he comes back and goes, whoa, you know, you did it, holy shit, you know, in a matter of weeks. It was a lot of fun. It became a big thing in its day. And then at some point you moved to this location. At that time my wife was from Nicaragua been here a few years said you know she wanted to get a job i said well i work for some other schmuck why don't we just create our own bookstore and so we did that in uh 91 originally it was only a thousand a month right here at that time what do they want now uh <laughs> well we were discussing the possibility of ten thousand, but i wouldn't be allowed to share it anymore which would have been daunting i think they'll probably wind up getting a lot more than that at this point so what's the size of this space it's about five six hundred square feet but that's the going price for even half this nowadays. It's crazy. There's no rent control or rent stabilization that applies to commercial spots like this. That's anymore. right, yeah. When it comes to commercial, it's like there's no control at all. Yeah, it's whatever you can get. As I said, there's so much support, even from politicians. Mark Levine, Eric Botcher, they're all like, we can't let this fail. We have to get, we got to find something for you, you know. Why do you think that is, all the attention? I have young people who are like 40 years old now who, who talk about getting teary-eyed about how they used to come in here as little kid and how important it was to them. What is it about your collection of books? I'm really careful not to taint the store with anything unworthy. There's, I can't say every single book is absolutely essential, but on the other hand, maybe they are. Whether it's ideological or psychological or spiritual. Your sign out front. I mean, I love the sign here. Anti-imperialist, non-imperialist, non. What is it? Non. I can't see it. Unoppressive, non-imperialist bargain books. You know, it's so much fun because 30 years ago, that name didn't necessarily. People were puzzled, like, what is that supposed to mean? You know, what are you like? And nowadays, though, after Bernie and AOC, you get like a cluster of top models passing by and and saying, "Wow, that's so cool! Look at that unoppressive, non-imperialist bargain books." Everybody gets it now. What does it even mean, really? It represents something more than the books. It's amazing how fast I could get uh, such a great response. People young and old, even children, who 
I can literally sell, I get like 30 copies of a book, like Karl Marx or something, and they're gone in a matter of four days. It's like astonishing, just because they're five bucks each instead of $10 each. Fanon's Wretched of the Earth had hundreds of them. They were gone in a couple of months. Even I'm shocked. I thought it was a lifetime supply. Over the years, it's the same story. I'll buy hundreds of a title thinking I'm hoarding a vast supply of them. And the response is so great. If you could choose any book in the store to give to every single person in the whole wide world, what would it be? You know, usually I'm, for you? I'm usually promoting William Blake a lot. It's like um, he's a very good representation of who and what we are. The key thing is we're the only unoppressive entity in the whole wide world. If you ever want to figure out what happened to us, just Google unoppressive and you'll always find us somewhere. Jim Jurgis is proprietor of the unoppressive, non-imperialist bargain bookstore. His last day is at 31 Carmen Street after 31 years. Reverend Billy Talon said of Jim Jurgis, the, the bookstore or that bookstore will not leave us. He proclaimed Jim Jurgis will not leave us. He will continue to curate our experiences as he continues to do that in whatever form it takes. He's making us revolutionaries. And that's some of the news for Wednesday, June 22nd, 2022. The news is produced with Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson from New York City. I'm Paul Durienzo. Thanks for listening.